Well, it might not have been enough to make you throw up, as we were warned it would. But the Auditor General's report that was released just a couple of days ago did find uh, a lot of issues when it comes to spending at the B.C. legislature. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, while applauding the work of the Auditor General, is also saying the time has come that we need to really overhaul how spending takes place. Let's bring in B.C. Director Chris Sims, who joins me on the line now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, What do you think of this? If we go through some of the numbers and some of the findings, what stands out to you in this report as perhaps the biggest abuse of taxpayer spending? What really got to us here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is just the lack of oversight and the lack of a mechanism uh, for spending for a review over spending. So what happened basically, if you read through the Auditor General's report, is that in some cases these folks were approving their own very fancy overseas travel. In other cases, their expenditures were being approved by subordinates, meaning people who answered to them. Uh, that is not the appropriate person to be approving your spending. And in lots of cases, as we saw in the initial reports coming from the Speaker's office, Um, these expenditures have no rhyme or reason. There's no really good work excuse for a lot of them. And if you go back to the original report, um, that was enough, I think, to make people puke. Uh, They need to look back at the original report with all of the receipts and all of the expense forms and then trace it all back to see what they were spending money on. It wasn't just a $3,500 wood splitter. It was trips over to the UK and spending sprees in their gift shops and a $2,500 Sony camcorder and thousands of dollars of Apple products, including Apple TVs. Why do these people need these things? They don't need any of these things. And we're paying for all of it. So there were major problems that we were seeing. And so we're glad that the Auditor General has really uncovered the cause of it. The cause of it is a lack of oversight and a lack of accountability. And we think that they need to get this done yesterday. And isn't it, I think, anybody who works at any job where you submit expenses, and I do, I submit parking expenses and mileage expenses every month. If I charge for $5 of parking, but I don't have a receipt to back it up, I don't get reimbursed. No. I don't, or it certainly is flagged and I get questioned on it. Why are you charging this $5? Where's the receipt? Oh, you parked at a parking meter. Okay, where was the parking meter? Make sure, uh, you know, there are questions about it. And that's over, that's over parking. I, I mean, for anybody that files expenses, I think they must just be shaking their head at this going, how is this okay? Yes, exactly. Your point exactly stands. That's for parking. And, you know, very good to do due diligence as an employer and making sure that spending is being put in the right place. But most of the time, people can expect that parking, especially on a day you're working, is a legitimate work expense. Um, Why is gunpowder mustard on your expense list? Why are whiskey cakes on your expense list? Why are you expensing a Seattle Mariners baseball game or a whale watching tour or a tripod worth $800? Why does the clerk's office need a tripod from a fancy camera store? Like, they don't need any of this stuff. And we have to remember, too, the amount of magazine subscriptions that these folks were hauling in on taxpayers' dime. Everything from literally the electric bike magazine to Arizona Backroads magazine. Like, it was just mind-boggling going through these receipts. 
And so I'm really glad that we, one, have the first report coming from the Speaker's office, and two, now we have this very formal report that looks at why this went under the radar and went willy-nilly for so long. And what needs to happen now is all of these MLAs that sit on the LAMSI committee, the Legislative Affairs Management Committee, need to implement all of these recommendations. Like, now. This should have been done years ago. It's embarrassing that this happened, and we now need to change these things, but it needs to be done right now. Uh, And what about the issue as well of even travel expenses? Because the report points out also that just the ballooning of the travel expenses, and Mm -hmm. again, seems to have happened with absolutely no one questioning it. Yes, exactly. You know, it's a, it's a good question. So why does the speaker, the sergeant-at-arms, or the clerk of a provincial legislature need to go to England? Why? Why do they need to go three times in almost a calendar year? Why do they need to jet to Hong Kong? Why, all of these things are really inexplicable. Um, their roles are, are very formal. Um, they're guided by rules that they're supposed to be, and they're provincial These folks aren't, you know, provincial ambassadors that need to be flung off to different corners of the planet to promote British Columbia. That's not their job. Their job is to manage affairs on a tiny little map dot within Victoria, a city on an island. They they can stay there and do their job. So all of this needs to have a really hard look taken at it, and they need change. We can't just continuously have people observing loudly, hey, there's a fire. (laughs) <laughs> no, the fire needs to be put out. And it's also concerning to see the, the increase in travel expenses. I will point out as well, at the Speaker's office, I'd like to know why it increased by tens of thousands of dollars from a year ago, the year that was really in question, to the most recent year. I, there may be a good reason for that, uh, but we need to know why that is. And do you think, too, does it raise the issue of the the difference between elected officials and the transparency that's required when it comes to spending and those who aren't elected but are still working at a legislature that are still spending taxpayer money? You nailed it. You hit the nail on the head. So for listeners who don't know, MLAs, rightly so, have to post all of their expenses because they're using your money. So anybody who faces an electorate, uh, any member of the Legislative Assembly, all of that is posted on the Internet. Frankly, we'd like to see more, but that's fine. I'd like to see original receipts. But it's all posted. That's all taxpayers' money. But the folks who work in those little black and white robes in the middle of the legislature building, uh, the speaker, the clerk, and the sergeant-at-arms and their staff, they all use taxpayers' money. They're not elected, but they don't post their expenses. And further, they're not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So that means that even if you got a whistleblower, say you got a whistleblower in your newsroom saying, hey, I think this is ex- this expense- these expenses are happening, you wouldn't be able to file an FOI request to find out where this money's going. That all needs to change. The fact that this is already happening is inexcusable. The Accountability Act federally and in Parliament in Ottawa, I think that was passed in 2006. Here we are, 2019. We're way behind here in B.C., and this really needs to change. 
I wonder, too, looking at this, even if we got to a place where something is approved or there's more accountability, I'm, I'm also curious as uh, the value for the money. And take, for example, uh, the, people love to go on trips to, to other places to look at things like security procedures. So we've had it to, to look at uh, transportation solutions. Great. But what do you actually get from that? Because it seems like when somebody comes back, and one of the expenses uh, was, was traveling around to look at exactly that security procedures at other Capitol buildings. Maybe they have better locks. Maybe they have better uh, procedures there that keeps everybody safe. Fine. But doesn't seem like there's anything when you come back from these fact-finding missions and you've spent all this taxpayer money, there's nothing to show that you actually have to file a report, write a report, give a presentation, do something that that lends to, to proving why you had to go in the first place. Yes, exactly. That should be contingent on all of these trips. So they need to show value for money. So you're right. In some cases, sure, if they do truly need to go see how things like, God forbid, uh, an acute, you know, uh, possible terrorist attack or something like that happening at a legislative assembly is handled in other jurisdictions and they're truly being put through their paces and they're, they're consulting with experts and people in the field and they're improving safety or the way that a legislature runs, okay, write up that report. Show us, while not compromising the safety of the building, obviously, show us what changes you're going to implement. Show us what you've learned. Do your homework and prove your work. Don't just fly around the planet or drive around to different legislatures and, you know, stroke your chin for an hour and then go do whatever you want for the rest of the day. That's not a good use of taxpayers' money. And if you can legitimately defend it, fine. The way I try to look at expenses when it comes to taxpayers' money, like you pointed out with the parking, that's a legitimate thing. You are at work. You need to park your vehicle. You shouldn't have to pay for that out of your own pocket. If you're standing at a gas station and you're lining up to pay, would you turn around to the person behind you and say, hey, I'm working. I'm working for you. Could you please cover this for me? If you wouldn't feel comfortable doing that, you probably shouldn't expense it. Because that's exactly what you're doing. You're taking money out of all of our pockets. Yeah, well, it's uh, certainly an eye-opening report, and we'll have to see, hopefully, and see uh, if anything changes. I know your group uh, is calling for that. Chris, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much, and I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Well, you likely saw some of the coverage. Hundreds of thousands of young people marched in cities around the world yesterday, demanding politicians heading to a UN summit on climate change take immediate action. Many students in many countries chose to march in these rallies and rather rather than go to school, taking part in the global climate strike. Some people say we should study to become climate scientists or politicians so that we can in the future solve the climate crisis. But by then it will be too late. We need to do this now. That was 16-year-old Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg speaking at a rally in New York City yesterday. Well, let's bring in Patty Backus, a former Vancouver school board chair who has written about this issue and talking about why students need the support of their school boards today. Patty, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Jill. Good morning. Do you think, do students have the support of teachers and school board trustees as these rallies become more, uh, become even larger? Well, it's interesting because I I started thinking about this uh, about a week or two ago when I saw a tweet from a New York Public Schools official Twitter account 
um, really proactively saying that uh, New York City schools would excuse absences of students participating in the climate strike and uh, as long as they had their parental consent. Um, and also uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio had tweeted out that the New York City schools would be sharing guidance with parents and educators on how students could participate in the climate strike, which I thought was a pretty bold and proactive statement from a school board about something that uh, uh, I think had been perceived as students, you know, protesting and skipping school by, by others. So I thought, well, that's a really, I think it's a really positive move in recognition of this is a student-led movement. Um, Greta Thunberg uh, sat there by herself uh, just over a year ago in front of the Swedish parliament, this little waif-like figure, those, you know, you see the picture circulating on the internet. And, and that has swept into this global movement that is, I think, incredibly powerful and, and quite inspiring. And as a member of the baby boom generation, quite humbling that youth are moving so quickly and so determinedly to take bold action to really, I think, turn around the mess that my generation has, has left them and has created for them. So I thought, you know, if I had still been a school trustee and I chaired the Vancouver School Board for six years, this would be one of those opportunities, I think, for leadership and support to say we recognize students are leading the way and, and children and youth are leading the way. What can we do to support that and recognize that, respect it and encourage it? So I started asking school boards uh, around, uh, particularly Metro Vancouver. And, and to be clear, there was a lot of uh, activity on the climate strike issue yesterday, but the main Vancouver rally is planned for next Friday on the 27th at City Hall in Vancouver. So that's, so I was asking the question of Metro Vancouver school boards, you know, what are you doing to support your students? Are you announcing that their absences will be excused? Are you uh, authorizing field trips to go to events? Because this is a really powerful time, and I think we are at a crossroads. And I think those of us in positions of authority and leadership have an obligation to recognize the kind of leadership. Uh, you know, Greta Thunberg, 16 years old, is the leader of the world needs right now, in my opinion, to uh, really say to um, governments that she wants them to listen to the scientists. <laughs> and that's what she's been asking. That's what's been her message. Um, who are telling us, we don't have time to dither on this. Uh, and so um, I did reach out to several. I was really pleased to hear that the New, New Westminster School Board, I, I had contacted their chair, Mark Gifford. He had a motion going to one of his board's committees last week, taking a very similar stand as New York, and he's uh, got support for that and has tweeted out. So that was positive. Um the Victoria School Board Chair uh, responded to me quickly, Jordan Waters, that the climate strike rally, which was yesterday in Victoria, actually coincided with a district professional day. So they didn't have an issue there about absences, but she was actually speaking at uh, some climate change events and uh, was very supportive. So that, that was a really positive thing to hear. I didn't get that from some other school boards. Um, I didn't hear anything back uh, from Surrey. Uh, until yesterday afternoon, after I'd been really pushing this out there, I published my column, I had uh, asked some questions, and I finally saw yesterday afternoon the superintendent of the Surrey School District did uh, put out some information that students would be excused parental permission, permission, but they will not be authorizing any field trips. So if classes wanted to go as part of their uh, studies, that that would not be authorized. Uh, Vancouver was really, really probably the worst that I got the response. I didn't get any response at all for several days after emailing their board chair. I did follow up with a text about 
three or four days later, and she said, I've referred your request to communications staff, which is, you know, I'm asking what the elected officials are doing there. Staff replied that, uh, you know, pretty much business as usual will be taking attendance, absolutely nothing to support uh, student participation, which I was pretty shocked because Vancouver is typically one of the more progressive districts, or it was in the past. So, you know, my point was to really push, like, what are we as adults, particularly adults in leadership roles, doing to support and enable uh, student leadership and participation in probably the most important issue of uh, their time and their future is at stake. And I guess, too, is there a bit of a balancing act, though, because while there will be parents that will give consent for their students, for their kids to go to uh, the climate rally, particularly next Friday, if they want to, there are also going to be parents who would say, I want my kids to stay in school. I want my kids to be learning and where they're supposed to be, which which is at school and wouldn't want the trustees or the boards to be encouraging that. Well, I would say they would probably be learning an awful lot uh, by participating in such a global movement. Uh, yes, that schools have to be somewhat neutral in terms of anything that could be perceived as political, which is just about everything. Um, but to participate, uh, to attend, and, and to be clear, the, the position I was looking for was the the stance that the New York City schools took, which say, if you're participating and you have your parents' permission, you have our blessing, essentially. You won't be penalized in any way. You will be excused from class if that's the choice that you make and your parents uh, uh, assign some sort of permission for that. And I think in the elementary, you'd have to actually be picked up by a parent if you were to leave school midday, which is pretty standard operating. But I felt the, the way they went out there so proactively by tweeting it out and making those pronouncements, it, it was, I would say, an encouraging tone. Um, and I think that uh, we are at a point where we're not talking about some, you know, extreme political view. We're asking, look at, listen to the scientists, listen to what the world's scientific community has been saying and saying and saying with a strong consensus. This is sort of beyond the point of, you know, I agree or disagree. We know the reality is the climate is headed for trouble. And if there isn't bold action by world leaders, we uh, it could be too late for these kids who are asking us to uh, allow them to have a future. Uh, do you expect that it might change or because, like you said, it's only been a year since that picture or since uh, Greta Thunberg was pictured by herself, essentially uh, doing a, doing this protest, doing a, a climate strike. Do you think it might change or it'll just take some time until school boards and elected officials in schools are, are, are more on board with this? I think it's coming. And I, that's partly what I was, you know, really trying to poke them a bit. I think some are just sort of sitting back and trying to, to not get into it. Um, but I think we have to. Like, I think there's that old saying about, you know, those who sort of sit on the fence in times of moral crisis. Or, you know, you, you, you have to take a position, and it, particularly when it comes to supporting student leadership. That is the role of school boards. We're, we're there teaching students to become engaged citizens who can participate in democracy. And this is such a remarkable time and so unprecedented that a leader like Greta Thunberg has has you know, this little small waif-like figure has become this symbol and powerful voice who is terrifying a lot of people with her, with her straightforward, no-nonsense uh, call to action 
and not taking excuses and not having the patience for a lot of mealy mouth non-responses and we'll, we'll study that. Like the science is there, folks. Please listen to it. She's telling us that her generation, you know, needs this to happen now. And uh, it's just, as a someone governing a school board, I can't think of a more powerful uh, movement that I would want to say, wow, look at the, the power that you have. What a message for, for children and youth. And, and what a hopeful message, I think, that where you don't just have to accept this sort of gloom and doom prognosis for your future, where you actually have a chance to participate in, in making it different. And not when you're older. You have a chance to do that now, and you have our support. I think that would be just an incredible message, and I think it will grow. I think it's... Uh, but it's unfortunate to me that we haven't seen more leadership from those who are elected to govern our school boards. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. And uh, certainly we'll be following what happens on Friday and looking at those numbers. Patty Backus, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it today. Thanks for having me on your show, Joe. There is one month to go in the federal election campaign today. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and conservative leader Andrew Scheer both taking the day off. Uh, we are going to be hearing later uh, from Jagmeet Singh and uh, Elizabeth May. But let's bring in right now Global News chief political correspondent David Aiken uh, to talk a little bit about where things stand on the campaign. Uh, David, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to have a day off the campaign trail because we were all over the country last week. I was following the liberal leader and uh, next week I'll be following Elizabeth May and the Green Party and and seeing what they're doing as they try to connect with Canadians. So let's talk about the week that was uh, because there's been a lot of talk of the news cycle and how things come and go. But it doesn't appear uh, that to what's happening as far as uh, Justin Trudeau and the revelations from this past week are going anywhere. Yeah, they're they're out there and, you know, uh, talking to people from a variety of different political backgrounds, veterans of war rooms, provincially, federally, and again, you know, sort of on all sides, it's really hard to figure out how this, the revelation of Trudeau's blackface, brown, multiple blackface, brownface um, um, events are going to affect the electorate. What we do know is that a lot of the very senior members of Trudeau's cabinet, who are visible minorities, and here I'm thinking about Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan in Vancouver, um, uh, uh, Ahmed Hussein, who is the first African member of, of cabinet, born in Ethiopia, born in Somalia, pardon me, um, uh, he's from Toronto, uh, Amarjeet Sohi, the Natural Resources Minister up in uh, Edmonton, all of these ministers uh, issuing largely similar uh, statements in which they said when they learned of these images, they were deeply disappointed. They thought they were disturbing. They're hurtful. But then the back half of their statements also saying that those images did not uh, correlate to the Justin Trudeau that they signed up to work with, that they worked with for the last four, five, six, seven years. And uh, and they were prepared to uh, accept his apology and uh, and continue working. So that's what liberals are doing. And I think I think clearly, from a political standpoint, liberals are hopeful that if the sort of the last couple of days' worth of apologies from Trudeau will be enough. But we don't know. I mean, uh, as I say, what sort of voter might be turned off by this? In my view, and again, talking to experts, is the kind of voter who might have voted for Trudeau for the first time 
in 2015. And voted for the first time and voted for Trudeau. So we're thinking younger people primarily, um, indigenous people, a lot of indigenous Canadians voted for the first time, and they may have voted on that promise of, quote, hope and hard work. And remember, uh, Trudeau promised electoral reform. He promised much more rapid uh, reconciliation. He promised much more rapid work on climate change. And I think there were a lot of, quote, progressive voters, first-time voters, millennial voters, who were already a bit disappointed in the broken promises um, on electoral reform for sure and then some others. And then they're going to see this. And I now wonder how voter turnout will be for those voters, whether they will just go, see, he's just like everybody else. This is why I didn't vote. It's why I don't vote. It's why I don't participate. And that could have an impact, I think, uh, particularly on some uh, on some tighter races on October 21st. And do you think, too, it's not an issue of people suddenly think that Justin Trudeau is racist, but they think he's a bit of a fraud in the person he put mm. himself out there to be and what we're now learning? Yes, and our, our, our friend Andrew Coyne of the National Post has a column this morning that is pretty much on point to that, that, uh, you know, it, it, Coyne is saying essentially that, yes, I, he doesn't believe that Trudeau is a racist, but, uh, you know, fraud, hypocrite, and, you know, I think that is the, the vulnerable point for Trudeau now for if we're going to have a campaign that is now maybe hinging on values, um, values of trust, values of judgment, values of leadership. You know, hypocrisy comes into that. And on this values campaign, I mean, don't forget, we have Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party, who, um, you know, the liberals before all this Trudeau stuff happened were, were you know, busy uh, really hammering Scheer on the idea that he gave this speech in the House of Commons in 2005 in which he was at, you know, a speech to say we, we should not adopt same-sex marriage in Canada. He's against it. Kind of sounds like he still is against it. But the language he used in that 2005 speech, uh, a lot of critics say, you know, was hurtful, was um, uh, not appropriate. Again, it's 2005. Now, Shear keeps getting asked, do you want to come back to that and maybe say, you know, do you acknowledge that that was hurtful, maybe even apologize for it? And he was asked about this yesterday on the campaign trail. And Sheer doesn't. He, you know, he says, we've all moved on from that. Um, that may be, but in, if it's going to be a values election, I think a lot of voters may be looking at Sheer and find him a little wanting, clearly looking at Trudeau and find him wanting. And that really, I think, opens up the way for, you know, Jagmeet Singh, who of the NDP, who I thought had, was having a good campaign. And I thought his response to this blackface, brownface was, was no perfect. He didn't really use it to attack Trudeau. He used it to reach out to those Canadians, visible minorities, who've been victims of racism, who've been victims of bullying and joke-making by, let's face it, white frat boys like Trudeau. And, uh, and I think uh, it was a real opportunity that, that for, for Singh, and he did, did, did a great job of getting people to listen to him. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. And uh, David Aiken, a much-deserved day off. Thank you so much for joining us today. That is Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, David Aiken. Well, it's going to be a very special day in White Rock today. The local pier will officially reopen. You'll remember a severe windstorm knocked out a big section of the pier. There has been much fundraising to get it back up and a part of that community. Well, joining me on the line to talk a little bit about what is going to be happening later today is Daryl Walker. He is the mayor of White Rock. Mayor Walker, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. A big day today in White Rock. Wonderful day in White Rock. We've been waiting for 
10 months or so for this event to come along. Uh, and it's, it's going to be great. The weather looks like it's going to hold off for us. I'm hearing from people not only in White Rock and South Surrey, but throughout Metro Vancouver that they want to come down and enjoy uh, White Rock and the reopening of our pier. Uh, and taking a look at the pier and what's happened since it was knocked out in that windstorm, do we have a final price tag on what the rebuilding has cost? Well, thus far, we've spent slightly over $4 million, so let's say 4.3, 4.4, and that's just the initial stage. That was literally putting the broken part back together, replacing all of the pier uh, pilings and cross pieces that need to be replaced because there was a lot of other damage done uh, that particular day. So that's about what we think is around a third of what needs to be done. The rest of it is going to be slightly over $11 million, and we're, of course, in the process of fundraising and waiting for provincial grants uh, to be able to do that. We're not necessarily even sure of what a date might look like for that to begin. Uh, but at this point, with the official reopening today, will people expect, will it have to be closed down in sections in the future to continue the rebuilding? That's the belief, and our hope is that we can do it just in one tranche. We don't have to close a piece down and do that and then open it again. We want to try and get it completely restored as quickly as we can. And what about the issue of boats that were moored in that it was the boats crashing into the pier that took out that big section? Will there be boats moored there in the future? That's a decision that's yet to be made by the council. We haven't really even talked about that. Our focus is on getting the pier completely reconstructed. And until that's done, um, we don't necessarily think we're going to go down that road. It may or may not happen again. It's, it's up to the will of our council. And I would guess, too, one of the, the uh, factors there would be that it's been rebuilt. It's a much stronger pier this time in that it might better uh, stand up to a storm. And if there were boats there, it would stand up much better in the future if there was a storm bashing boats into it. I think that's extremely accurate. We're considering that this was not a once-in-a-hundred-year storm, that this is something that's very possible with climate change that we may see on a regular basis, hopefully not every year, but the king tide and the winds and just the direction that the, the storm came from, it was a perfect storm to come in and, and make the damage to, to our, uh, our pier. And we will restore it above and beyond where it was at before. We intend to do seismic upgrades to the shore bottom around the shore of the pier itself. And we also hope to talk to uh, probably the federal government about uh, revitalizing the breakwater. And as far as uh, compensation for businesses, or is that even an, an, an issue right now for businesses that saw the numbers go down or, or are saying that they, they lost business because the pier was out of commission? Again, that is not something that we've, we've discussed. Uh, and, and for the most part, our businesses, I think, are fully understanding of what happened that particular day. There was also a number of other issues, such as ongoing construction on the waterfront that had been going you know, a year and a half worth of the Memorial Park, all of the rail crossings. And we have four new crossings now that help to protect people that want to get from the uh, promenade over the tracks and, and down to the water. So, no, we haven't gone uh, down that lane as yet. All right. Uh, and the timeline, then, is that still following what was expected as far as the reopening and then moving forward and, and rebuilding uh, from this point on? Well, the, the timeline to, to redo what has been done now was pretty much online. As a matter of fact, they came in about four or five days ahead of schedule, which allowed us to reopen the pier some time ago. I think it's three weeks or a month or so ago. We allowed people down there for the first time. So the time frame for that is in place. The time frame for the next piece 
is the unknown quantity because, of course, it comes to fundraising. We're waiting on news on federal and provincial grants that have been applied for now for almost since the day that the pier itself was was uh, destroyed. So uh, we, we can't give a time frame because we don't yet know exactly when we're going to have the funding. Uh, are you surprised at all at the reaction, the community reaction, and how many people rallied to to bring this pier back? <laughs> I guess, Jill, I probably am. But it wasn't just from our community or in South Surrey, White Rock, we call the peninsula. I've had people from all over Metro Vancouver call and say, when is it going to be reopened? What can we do to help it? There's been small fundraisers throughout our community that have uh, have raised $10,000 here, $15,000 there. Uh, and it's it's just been amazing how people have kind of got behind the rebuilding of this iconic pier. Everybody has a story. Everybody has been there. Everybody has taken their kids there and have ice cream or fish and chips. It's just something that's important to the entire larger community. All right. And will people then, uh, and I was looking at this the other day, uh, not really with the reopening of the pier, but will people, is the pilot project where people will be allowed to bring their dogs to the promenade, promenade, is that going ahead? Yes, it is. And it'll it'll start um, at the end of this month. So it runs, I think, the beginning of October to the end of March, about six months of what we call the off season. And uh, we're, we've, we've basically had a committee working on this for some time. There's going to be guidelines as well, well as obviously bylaws that have to be uh, respected. And if it works in, in a way that, that everybody has an opportunity to go down there, nothing is problematic. People clean up after themselves, so to speak. Uh, it could be a success, but it really is up to the people, especially the dog owners uh, who want to go down there to make sure that they're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Oh, definitely. And certainly there are other communities uh, where dog owners and non-dog owners are able uh, to live in harmony and get along. Uh, so many of them, quite frankly, every community you go to. And I, I spend a good deal of time now in Metro Vancouver and you see dogs here, dogs there. Uh, Granville Island last weekend with our granddaughter and dogs everywhere. And of course, she just loves dogs. So uh, and not a problem. People are, are cleaning up after them. Um, they understand their responsibility. They're on the leash that's required and they're not going into areas that they're, they're not to go into. And I, I think that's the important point is you can allow this to happen and you can be part of making sure it happens year over year but you can also be part of of a bad uh, pilot project whereby this is a one and done shot uh, exactly um all right so for people today it's uh, is it noon that this is happening uh, and are you encouraging the public to come out and to take part in the, in the big reopening today we absolutely are encouraging the public to come out. Yes, it will start at noon. There's going to be a band shell uh, set up closer to the White Rock itself. There's going to be a number of dignitaries there. There'll be a, a few speeches, not too many. We, we don't want to make this a political event. We want to celebrate the day. Um, then there will be a piper piping uh, the the troop, the, 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 the folks from the ceremony down to the pier, and we will cut the ceremonial ribbon. Following that at the band shell, I think there's three or four different groups that are going to be playing on into the afternoon and at the same time there's going to be a beer garden set up in the memorial um, uh, park itself uh, just uh, slightly west of the pier so this is a day of celebration come on out bring your families bring your kids and and come on down and, and enjoy white rock and enjoy the reopening of our pier all right sounds like it's going to be a great day for sure mayor walker thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning i appreciate it oh. 
You guys are the ones that help us get our story out. So I truly have appreciated the media from the get-go, from last December when this happened. The media have been top-notch in helping us tell our story. We appreciate you. Well, here's a question. Do you pay attention to how much water you use in your household on a day-to-day basis? If somebody was to ask you that, would you even know to ballpark the answer to the question? I'm guessing a lot of people don't and probably don't think about it a whole lot. You might think about it more if you had a water meter. Some homes in Metro Vancouver do, but certainly it is not the norm. Well, my next guest is an associate professor in the School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. Jordi Honey Roses, and I hope I'm saying your name correctly, joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, you've looked into this and you've been part of research that surveyed Metro Vancouver councillors about this. So what have you found as far as, well, first off, how many places or do we have parts of Metro Vancouver where we can see that water meters are actively being used and are the norm? Sure. So absolutely. So uh, West Vancouver is a good example. They're fully metered uh, as well as Richmond. Richmond actually just put in a very advanced metering system and so there are definitely cities in metro vancouver that have been putting in some uh, sophisticated technologies to learn about how uh, households use water use but they're the they're the exception and most uh, cities have been hesitant to go ahead and make that step and so um, it's something that uh, in metro vancouver we're a little bit behind uh, other other cities other regions in canada and the world and you, uh, you were part of the research as well that asked city councillors about this, and it did show, was it 68% of the, the councillors that you questioned said they would actually be in favour of this? Right, so that was a, a big surprise to us, uh, you know, given the fact that many, many cities uh, don't have a metering policy. Um, uh, we were surprised that, so, that there was so much support out there, and, and you have to keep in mind that this is a, a relatively new council. This uh, project idea started uh, a little under a year ago after the municipal elections, and we were curious to know what the views of our new council members were on this issue. And it's it's not a hot topic issue. It's not something that uh, uh, is, is normally part of the election cycle. And so we thought it might be an interesting idea to, to ask them directly and, and gauge what their views on, on advancing in water metering might be. And did they explain, too, as well, for those who are in favor of it, why they're in favor and what the benefit would be? Well, that's that's exactly right. That's the second question, right? We wanted to know not only what their views were, but what might the arguments be to uh, appeal appeal to them? And so, uh, of course, we had, to, had a very short survey. These are obviously very busy individuals. And so uh, we structured our survey so that we would get a sense of what the arguments would be for advancing metering. And we also saw some surprises there. Um, uh, we, we thought that a fair rate structure would be a, a strong argument that would appeal to council members because if you don't have meters, uh, you have you pay unfair unfair rates if you're a low water user, you're subsidizing the high water users. But that argument actually wasn't the strongest one. It was actually about the data and the value of the data that was being collected and also the, the sustainability value. That, that was not as much a surprise. Those were the two arguments that most appeal to counselors in, uh, in thinking about the value of water meters. Hmm. Uh, and do you think, is there at all uh, concerns or the idea that residents might be concerned that this is one more way of, of collecting data, collecting information, private information about people, uh, about what they do, uh, what they use in their homes? Absolutely. That's a big, that's a big issue. Um, 
And we've seen rollouts with, uh, in the energy sector with smart meters having a lot of pushback uh, precisely because of that reason. So it's something that, um, that cities need to be careful about how they, uh, how they manage that data and uh, how it's used, how it's shared. So it's, it's absolutely an, an issue. Uh, is there an issue, too, that it could actually lead to less revenue for some cities? Because like you said, it's not it's there's no level playing field right now. A family of one pays the same as a family of six when it comes to right. water use. If suddenly people are monitoring their water, they're seeing it and there's a cost associated with it. There's a chance people could use less and that would lead to less revenue for the various cities. Right. So. Um, it, it would depend on how the rate is structured. You, you can have a volumetric uh, rate structure and still have a fixed uh, fixed fee uh, that would ensure some sort of revenue stability for the for the municipality. Um, but if, if the system's using less water, if you're detecting leaks, less water is going through the system. You're also um, saving money on the on the on the wastewater tr- treatment side, right? Um, because less water being being pushed through the system is is um, ultimately not being treated. So there's there's a lot of savings as well. Um, around the board. So overall, it's, it's definitely more efficient to understand uh, where water is going to be able to detect leaks and uh, install these uh, disguises. It, it really helps the, the efficiency of, of uh, municipal water systems. And I don't know if the survey broke it down or if you have the, the information, but were there particular areas that weren't in favor of this or that so you had a response from councillors saying there's not interest? Right. So that's that was a, also of, of interest, right? What in the cities where there's currently no policy? Uh, what, what are their views? Because that's is where where action needs needs to be taken. And we found that indeed in city amongst uh, cities that have no metering policy, there was less interest in pursuing uh, metering. But we also found champions. We also found that there were you know, council members who lived in a city that had no no metering policy that were strongly in favor of of th- thinking about this and starting that discussion. So. That that was really encouraging to to see, and uh, and we also saw that overall in the whole group that there's over eighty percent of uh, mayors and council members were interested in at least learning more and at least starting a discussion. So um, that that was really encouraging that um, uh, that that, that our, our leadership is interested in, in thinking about this issue and um, and hopefully it'll it can inspire researchers and staff at the city or regional level to. To, to put this issue forward and, and start a conversation about what uh, what value meters could bring to, to everyone. Uh, you mentioned, too, with West Vancouver and Richmond uh, leading the way in this. So what about the cost of setting it up with, I would imagine, the technology is changing as well when it comes to metering. Is that an issue uh, for cities or municipalities as well, that the initial cost could be quite high? Absolutely, sure. Of course, it's uh, it, it can be quite quite costly. You're, you're you're having to install devices in, in, in every uh, household, and so um, that's that's definitely a big part of the of the challenge. And every municipality, I think, needs to find the technology that that works for them. And but the, but there are lessons from uh, other cities that are are doing this here in, in the region and also elsewhere elsewhere in Canada. And so um, we we can learn from from how how other cities have have gone about uh, handling these issues. Is there other when you say elsewhere in Canada? Are there other cities in Canada that are, are kind of models for this? Well, you know, Toronto is is metered. Um, Kelowna is metered. I mean, there 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 are um, cities, you know, large and small that that have made that step. And you know, and, and if you look internationally, you know, there, there are countries like Buenos Aires, Argentina that are metered, right? So it's it's not it's not an issue of um, 
you know, it's an issue in part of, of, of political will, and so that was part, partly why we, we, we wanted to understand what the, what the views of our, of our leadership was on, on this issue. All right. Well, it's interesting, in, for sure, looking at this and uh, seeing some of the results and seeing uh, the, the bit of a disconnect, I guess, where it seems like there is a will to move forward and to at least explore this, but yet there are still so many places where it's not happening. Right. And, and maybe just because there's, there's just a limited 24 hours in a day and perhaps, you know, there's a lot of issues in, in this region that are capturing the attention of our, of our leadership. And so um, you're absolutely right. There seems to be interest in, uh, on our survey that in our leadership to, to think about this and have a discussion about what the benefits of metering might be. And we, we would, we, you know, we'd like to, to help, um, you know, think those issues through because they're, they're costly um, you know, investments. And so it needs to be well done and well thought through, but you know, it seems that, um, that there are definitely advantages to, to moving ahead and improving the efficiency of our, of our water systems. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today and to share some of your research. Uh, much appreciated. Thanks again. All right. Thank you very much.